0: Good morning, my name is Mitch Gibbs. I am one of the pastor elders here at uh, the Gathering Church. We are continuing our series. It's the story, the life of David is our series theme. It is through the book of 1 Samuel. So uh, if you would find your way specifically to Samuel chapter 15, that is where I will spend most of my time today. This is the rejection of Saul as God makes way for David, who is one who has a heart after God's own. Does it seem as loud to you as it does to me? Okay. I just thought maybe it was me. I think they're, they're trying to turn. Oh, there we go. That's a little quieter. Thank you. My theme this morning is make a way for a heart after God's own. Make a way for a heart after God's own. The three points that are actually four points, I guess I'm uh, following into a rut, but I broke the rut this morning, we have four points. It's the orders, the partial, the face-to-face, and to make way for a heart after God's own. As we look at this text this morning, we need to do it in a couple of stages. In the beginning, I'm going to actually try to do a review and get our story up to the place where we enter into chapter 15. So the beginning of the message, our introduction, we're going to go through and build this story so that we can get a picture in our mind, the context and and the nature and the texture of the scriptures up to this point. And so if you will stay with me as we introduce this chapter 15, we'll also go and look through from the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel up to the point of chapter 14. One of the things I want to encourage you, there are great stories before in chapters 1 through 15. In fact, I thoroughly enjoyed reading chapter 5 through 6 that dealt with the uh, whole interaction between Dagon, the God of the Philistines, and God's Ark of the Covenant. I mean, that is a fantastic story. You need to go home and just read that, because I will not be able to address that fully today. But that is your assignment, and it's an assignment I think you will thoroughly enjoy as you read God's Word and see how God powerfully acts in that story. Let us go before the Lord at this time as we go before him in prayer. Father God, we are in need of you. Father, sometimes we don't recognize the desperation of the need we have within our own lives. But Father, I pray that you'd make that aware to us this day. We need you to guide us and direct us. We need you to empower us. And Father, we need you to save us and to help us grow in our salvation. For it is you who will and work in us according to your purpose. Father, we pray that you would have your way in us and your purpose will be fulfilled this morning for what you have planned. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Judges, chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, or ending in verse 25, because it's the last verse in the book of Judges, it tells us that... It was the day of Israel, and in that day, they had no king. The resulting consequence of them having no king is they did whatever was right in their own eyes. In the way of our Western culture, as it is going, it makes true the statement of what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. For as much as things change in this world we realize how much they do stay the same. Because we live in a society and a culture and amongst people who have no king and they do what is right in their own eyes. In fact, we ourselves sometimes can be deceived and we may live as if we have no king. Let us begin by starting back a few chapters Specifically, at the beginning of the story of Samuel, where we already heard from Pastor Matthew about Hannah's prayer and her dedication of Samuel. We need you to remember these things and to remind ourselves of them. When we look at the text of 1 Samuel, it opens up and it is the time of the Judges. 1 Samuel begins where they had no king, and we're going to progress our way up to chapter 15. So let us move forward in this story and see what we have before us. Once again, I've already mentioned Hannah's dedication of Samuel to the Lord for as long as he lives. At that time, Eli was the priest, and he was the judge. We know when we read from the text of the book of Samuel That Eli himself was somewhat corrupt, for he always took the best of the sacrifices for himself. And unfortunately, his own sons were not much better as well. For when we read the text, it tells us they are worthless men who did not know the Lord. So they were unbelievers, and they were to be the leaders of the nation of Israel. And they treated the offering to the Lord with contempt, meaning they did not honor God in their service. And this is the condition in which Samuel is growing up, Eli the high priest and ultimately the judge, and Eli's sons who are corrupting the worship of the Lord in the nation of Israel. It was a time when the Philistines were at war with the nation of Israel. The Israelites send for an ark in the midst of a battle hoping that somehow it's going to work like some sort of rabbit's foot that's going to give them luck to overcome the Philistines. They didn't ask God for direction. They didn't even ask God to actually help them in the battle. They just said, go get the ark. Maybe that will help us win the battle. So of course, Eli's son bring the ark and they're out there in the battle and the Philistines are still at war and they still are in the midst of the battle. In the midst of this battle, What ends up happening is about 35,000 of Israel's soldiers are killed. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, and the two sons of Eli are also killed. This was all prophesied to Eli before the event itself happened. It happened in its fullness and it was completely fulfilled. There was one who escaped from this battle to go back and tell Eli the whole story about what happened and how the war went and how the battle was lost and they had lost the Ark of the Covenant and also his two sons had died in the battle. Eli, hearing this story, grieved, overcomes, sitting down, falls over, hits his neck, and breaks his neck, and he too dies. This is the time in which Samuel was growing up. This is the time in which Samuel now becomes the new judge. We're told that Samuel found favor in the eyes of God. That he was chosen. He grew in stature and favor before God. And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Meaning that every word he prophesied was fulfilled that God honored every word spoken by Samuel. Samuel, after these events in chapter 7, becomes the judge of Israel. He is a good judge. It appears that he's a man after God's own heart. For as we read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, Samuel proclaims to the people, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. The people of Israel put away their Ashtoreth, and they put away their idols. They turn back to the Lord because they follow Samuel and his leadership, and they remember what the Lord had done for them in the past. As they grow in their understanding, however, it did not seem to last long, because in First Samuel chapter eight, beginning in five through eight, the people begin to grumble, and Israel is known for much grumbling. For Moses adhered their grumbling for decades and eons, but in First Samuel chapter eight, verses five through eight, it tells us, "Behold." The people speaking to Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations because we want to be just like everyone else, Israel says. It's always been peculiar. God does make provisions for a king in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He actually points out this is how a king should be. He should not be greedy. He should not be self-serving. He should not have many wives. He's given guidelines, and what is interesting, if we are to look at God's guidelines for what a king is to be and look at all the kings that Israel ever had, none of them ultimately meet the requirements in which God had set as a standard in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But they asked for a king because they want to be just like everyone else. It's interesting, Leviticus actually tells us that God commanded, be holy for I am holy. To be holy means we are different than the rest of the world, we are set apart, we're unique, and yet oftentimes we want to look like everyone else, just like the Israelites did. We want a king so that we can be just like everyone else in the world. Well, clearly, Samuel was not all that excited because they're essentially judging his own leadership, and he is discomforted by this whole idea. In verse 6, it tells us, but the thing, meaning the nation of Israel requesting a king, displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. It is interesting, Samuel, rather than rejecting the request, the first thing is, what does God have to say about all this? Verse 7 tells us, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Samuel felt the rejection. God understands and feels the rejection of the nation of Israel. He experiences these things and he's emotional. He, he feels, he regrets, he grieves over our sins and over the rejection that we have towards him. And Samuel feels some of the same things that we begin to see that Samuel, just like David, had a heart after God's own. We understand from the story that soon Saul is raised up and appointed as the king over the nation of Israel. God gives revelation to Samuel that this Saul is to be the king and he anoints him and he calls him. One of the things we see as we read through the story of 1 Samuel, there are things in, Samuel, or in Saul's own life that make us question, is this to be the king? Because it appears that he has some character flaws. He's hiding in luggage. He doesn't seem to have all the wisdom that might be necessary for a king. He follows his servants rather than making direction and taking leadership himself. But yet, this is the king that the people wanted. When Samuel saw him, he was a head taller than all the rest of the Israelites. He was handsome, and certainly he looked kingly, and yet there were many flaws in his own character. If we fast forward now up to chapter 14, there are many stories, and once again, I encourage you to read through the first 14 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. We come to the end of this whole portion in First Samuel 14, beginning in verse 47 through 52. What that tells us is everything that Samuel or Saul had actually completed, that all of his great works, all of his completions, everything that was worthy and praiseworthy that Saul had completed is given us in order and it's detailed, including all of his descendants and all of his offspring that he actually had. This is for the purpose to say, look, this is all the good that Saul did. So now we turn to chapter 15 and begin to look at some of the bad that Saul also did. As the Lord begins to make a way for a heart after his own. Let us look at chapter 15. It is the orders that are given in the first seven verses. I'm not going to read the entire section. I'm going to read and we will look at each portion of this text in turn. But this is our reading this morning. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, let us read verses 1 through 7. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. When Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. Now, if you just heard this commandment, we might have to ask the question, and you might even be asking the question yourself as we've read it. How do we deal with commands like these when God says that we need to essentially exterminate an entire people to bring waste and to bring nothing from them, to kill all and destroy them. I know even for myself, these commandments make even me feel a little unnerved and a little uncomfortable. But I need to examine what is the purpose ultimately of God's giving such commands as these. And we need to ask the question, is God just in commanding such commands as these? As we look at these orders, the level of curse that has come upon the people of Amalek is destruction upon the people. If God is just in his judgments, then we need to understand what it is that he is doing in this text. There are two reasons that God gives commandments like these that we can at least see from the teachings of scriptures. First and priority is God's judgment against the wicked and evil people. We understand even in the New Testament, God's wrath remains on those who are unconfessed and who are sinners. That's the very nature. And, and in some ways, this is actually a teaching moment for us to realize even as we see all the judgment that God had delivered in the Old Testament, there is even greater judgment yet to come in the, the end times when God brings his full wrath upon all people. And that we need to be prepared and know the nature and the person of God, that he is a God of justice and that he brings his vengeance and he protects his people. In fact, it is in his vengeance against the enemies of the people that they actually find hope and encouragement because they know that God fights for them as he fights for us and that we are encouraged by these things. These Amalekites go back into Exodus chapter 17. That's our first understanding of who these people are. If we look back, it is the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. They've just had the rock that is giving them water and they are struggling. They lack food and they are weakened in this whole episode. It is at this time the nation of Amalek comes up behind them and begins to attack them. Moses realizes that we need to set out for battle and he goes to the top of a mountain and he raises his hands. As long as his hands are in the air, the Israelites prevail over the Amalekites. But when his hands get heavy, he drops them and all of a sudden the Amalekites prevail over the nation of Israel. So Hur and Aaron go up, they get a rock, they sit Moses down and on each side, they're holding up his hands and they were able to overcome the Amalekites at this time. It is in this very text, specifically in verse 14, that the Lord makes a judgment on the Amalekites and he says, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He makes this judgment because of the nature. These people are attacking the people of God. They have no respect for his people nor for God. And in fact, later on in chapter 15 Samuel says these people in verse 18 of chapter 15 are sinners. So we realize what they were in the beginning in Exodus chapter 17 when they were first introduced into the story. They have not changed and it's been 300 years have passed since that time. In Deuteronomy, Moses looks back and has a memory of that battle himself. He says, he, Amalek, attacked among you, all the stragglers of your rear, when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Moses remembers that battle, and he remembers that was a, that was a dirty type of a war, because they attacked us at our weakest spot. They were not bold and came to our front, but they attacked us from behind. And when we begin to look at God's judgment, It is these Amalekites who attacked God and his people first. It is God who sets his wrath upon these people and says they will be utterly destroyed. So they will be destroyed because this is the true word of God. We also come to an understanding that they are are not good people, but they themselves are sinners. Worthy of God's judgment. So how is it that we address these? If we declare that God is, in fact, a just, then we need to praise God and say, this is a wonderful thing that He has done, and that we worship Him. and we make this thing a thing not of question, but a thing of praise to celebrate all that God has done, that He fights for us, that He will bring vengeance. He's the God of judgment, and He's a God of justice. And it's necessary that He be this way, because He fights for us, and He defends us against our own enemies. If we look back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, beginning in verse four, it tells us about God. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is the nature of who God is. We may find ourselves uncomfortable with these commandments, but if God is just in giving these commandments, then we must praise him and extol him for who he is. And we must look to the word of God and believe what it says about the nature of God. And so find peace, at least in our faith, in the truth of God's word. Perhaps we might not find a sense of peace because we are sinners. And when we see sin judged, it makes us uncomfortable as well as it should. For we know ourselves that we will have to answer whether we have lived this life, whether for good or for evil as well. As we continue on and understand that it is God who gives these commandments to judge and to bring vengeance upon these people who from our understanding are worthy of God's wrath. We see also Saul in his fulfillment of this commandment. Saul is here an arm of God's judgment. Saul occupies a place in which he is an instrument of God to fulfill the purposes and to actually bring judgment upon a people. It is a holy position that Saul possesses as the king of Israel, as the one who's given the command to bring about God's vengeance and judgment upon the people of Amalek. But Saul, however, does not necessarily follow as he should. Let us look now in chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, as we continue the story. After verse 7 tells us, Saul defeated the Amalekites, verse 8 then says, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them all that was despised and worthless. They devoted to destruction. For the words of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. So we heard the commandment. Everything that was supposed to be a part of Amalek was to be destroyed. So here Saul is walking into town with Agag probably all chained up and all these cows and oxen and all the best of the things that the Amalekites had. Remember, he is the holy judge, the arm of God, to bring the vengeance upon this nation of Amalek, to bring his justice to bear upon these people. And yet he only does what we would consider a partial fulfillment of the commandments in which God has given to him. We see that he spared the king. Now, for me, when I look at that, it, it's like, well, why did he spare this king? Why, why him only? If you're a king and you want to establish yourself as a better king, and you have this king, and he's kind of essentially under your thumb, then it elevates your own position and in your own eyes and elevates your position. Look, he's a great king. He's better than the king Agag. And it's uh, something that uh, elevates... Saul himself, in his own eyes, at least, and he thinks is going to elevate his perspective in other people's eyes as well. But the Lord is grieved over this partial fulfillment of the orders that he has given to Saul. Verse 11, once again, says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went back down to Gilgal. Here in this story, we see that it is Saul and is an essential disobedience because partial fulfillment of the command God considers complete disobedience. God is not satisfied with, well, we got it close, God. From God's perspective, his, at least as his judgment upon Saul, being close isn't good enough. In fact, being close isn't even close to being obedient. It is actually, in fact, disobedience. He declares, Saul has turned from me. He's not done anything in his obedience. The reason he took over, and it was all about Saul and all about the possessions and elevating himself. In fact, we see when Samuel comes up to meet Saul, Saul had to divert himself and he makes a monument not to God, but to himself. Therefore, we know who's being exalted in this place is not the Lord, but it is Saul. So even though he may by his own lips have confessed, yes, I've at least done some things. We know he did not do them for goodness sake or for God's sake, but for his own sake. And therefore, God judges Saul and regrets Some of our translations translate this whole concept of regret as repentance. One of the other challenges, we who believe in the sovereignty of God wonder, how do we address this? Didn't didn't God see this coming? I mean, he is sovereign God over the heavens and the earth. He knows all things. How could he then come to a place where he appoints Saul, who he eventually regrets being the king? I don't know if you uh, have to ever parent your children sometimes and They want to do something over and over. Can we do this? Can we do this? Can we do this? But you know, nothing good is going to come from it. But they keep asking you and eventually say, Yes, they're going to let you do this. But you know they're going to fail. But you let them go and do it, and they experience the consequences of their own actions and determination. It becomes a lesson. Even though you know it's going to happen, you actually give them permission to see these things be accomplished. So hopefully they will learn from the the own natural consequences of the event itself. So they might grow and mature and actually come to their senses and make better decisions. I believe that is what God does here. For what is it? Israel said, we want a king just like everybody else. He did not give them a king after his own heart. He gave a king after their own heart, which is Saul. Because they wanted to be just like everybody else, and they got Saul as king. In some ways, giving them Saul is a judgment upon the nation of Israel, so that they see this is the kind of king you wanted. You need a king that I want, that I have chosen to place above you. So when we come to a place where we see the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, he is not saying, well, I really screwed up. He's saying... I'm genuinely feeling the pain. Just as you would see the failure of your own children, even though you allowed them to do these things, you feel the pain of their own self-consequences, of their judgment and the issues that they've done. That you feel the pain, and here God feels the pain, of the disobedience of Saul as well. It isn't that he's confused or he made a mistake, but he hurts when we rebel against him. Sin causes an ache in God's heart. These two things we also come to the understanding that at this point, the Lord places judgment upon Saul. He's decisive in his actions. He says, this is my command to go and do so. His failure means that you have disobeyed. You've rejected me as Lord. And that he also, we see that he is one who feels the pain, even though he's aware of all these things, he generally in the moment feels the, the pain and the regret of the abandonment of Saul and his disobedience. We also see in Samuel his anger and his frustration. He also regrets that he was in part of making Samuel or Saul king, and Samuel regrets these things. And he is broken as well because he feels the things that God feels. It is painful for him as well. So we have seen first the orders given by God, the judgment upon Amalek, the partial fulfillment, because partial fulfillment is complete disobedience from God's perspective. So when we're trying to talk to God and say, well, we got it close, God, God says, no, you got it all wrong. It's total disobedience is only partial fulfillment of God's commands. We learn that from this text, trying to somehow say, well, it's good enough. No, God is the only one who can judge what is good enough, not ourselves. Samuel is therefore sent by the Lord to go speak now to Saul. They have a face to face. They're going to really get to the nitty gritty. He says, Saul, what are you doing here? In verse 13, we see what Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. Saul says, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Praise me, Samuel. For look what I have accomplished. On behalf of the Lord, I fulfilled the commandment he has given to me. That's what Saul declares. He doesn't say, I've done partial. He said, I've done it all. That's how he defines. That's how he sees his fulfillment of the commandment that God has given to him. But Samuel is no fool. One of the, my favorite verses is uh, sitting there. Saul's just telling him about how great of a job he did. And Samuel says, uh, what then is this bleeding of the sheep? Basically, sheep are going, bah, ba bah. bah. He says, what is this? Because from what I remember, the commandment of the God, the Lord God, is that you were to have complete and total destruction of all that was a Melech. And yet I hear the bleeding of sheep. Not only do I hear the bleeding of sheep, I also hear the lowing of the oxen, meaning I hear moos as well with the baas of the animals. I hear all kinds of noise going on in the background. And yet you have said, bless be to the Lord. For I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Saul seemingly tries to take control of the story and tries to essentially, like most politicians, spin it in his own favor and say, hey, look at how good of a job I have done. Aren't you pleased with me? And, Saul, and Samuel says, I'm not pleased at all because your failure to complete the commandment of God is total disobedience and rejection of God. You did all these things, not because you wanted to bring glory to God, but you wanted to bring glory to yourself, and therefore you've completed nothing, but have rejected God and committed an act of disobedience. Saul lays blame upon the people. Verse 18, then Samuel said to Saul, stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Saul said, it's the people's fault. They were the one who got the sheep. They were the one who brought all these back. It's not my fault. You can't hold me accountable for their disobedience. And Samuel says, yes, I can. Because the Lord God has made you king, Saul, And that you are to be giving them the orders, not them giving you the orders. And if you were rightly in your place as king, you realize it is the Lord God who has appointed you as king over the people. So it is not you in yourself that has any strength, but it is the God who stands behind you who has appointed you as king. It is his strength, his authority, in which you speak, and it is to the people, and they are to follow it is hard for me to believe that in some way Saul said, Well, it's the people's fault, because I don't think the people cared whether they bring back the king of Amalek. I think that's Samuel's. I think that's his fishing story. Look what I caught. To boast about it and to brag and to show his prowess amongst his own people and to show, Look how strong I am to overcome a king. But you are rejected by God. Saul said to Samuel, verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to the destruction to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. We did this all for you, God, to bring these things back. But God has no pleasure in these things because we see in verse 22, Samuel says to Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The Lord's saying, I don't care about these sacrifices because it is in the act of your disobedience that you're going to bring sacrifices that were meant for destruction. You've rebelled and you have not followed the commandments of the Lord. It is an act of rebellion in which they've committed to disobey God and to not follow his commandments. And he goes, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. That it is obedience that God wants from us. Not our sacrifices, not our efforts. He wants us to listen and obey and to follow God and to do the things in which he has commanded us to do. Verse 23, actually Samuel begins to define what this means. He says, for rebellion is the sin of divination meaning that you have turned from God and you've turned either to yourself or to other gods, meaning that you are doing acts of witchcraft. You're trying to find power outside of God's power. And you are seeking to somehow find your own way and to find astrology and to find the the stars and see what your future is, rather than trusting in God and believing in him and expecting him to fulfill all the promises that he has given to you. You try to make your life your own and you try to go your own way and Samuel says that is a sin of divination. And he says that your presumption, meaning that you think you have the right, is iniquity and idolatry, meaning that you have turned away from the one true God and have turned to false gods and even to your own self-worship of yourself for you extol yourself rather than extolling God for all that he has done for us. Saul finally comes to a place, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Through all this time, what I see when I look at this text, even here when he says, I have sinned. He brings about a point of justification for his sin. The reason why he didn't follow God's isn't because I worship you and I know who you are in yourself. But the reason why he says, I didn't follow and obey God is because I was afraid of the people. Once again, he sees himself too small for it is not the people or himself, but it is God who is to be honored and glorified in all these events. And even this seems to be more of a justification of his sin. How often do we ourselves, we fall into sin and say, well, if it wasn't for my, my children or my friends, then I wouldn't have sinned. Oftentimes, rather than becoming less sinners, we become better justifiers of our sin. We become better arguers saying, hey, look, I got a pretty good argument for why I did this sin. So, you know, you got to let me off on that one. But God doesn't work that way. This is what I have commanded. This is what I expect. And when you fail, when you fall short of the glory of God, there's only one thing to do is to bow down and repent of our own failures and to come into the presence of the Lord and seek his face once again, acknowledging our sin and that we have sinned, as David says, we have sinned against you alone, O God, in our failures that we do not seek to justify, but we just seek to find repentance and to regain fellowship with God. For here, Saul's fellowship with the Lord is broken, for he is rejected from being king over Israel. In verse 27, Samuel turned to go away, and Saul seized the skirt of the robe, and it tore And Samuel said to to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Better in the fact that he will listen and he will obey. And when he sins, he will repent of his sins rather than seeking to justify his sins. So we see a picture here as Saul rips Samuel's robe Samuel says, Look, just as you've ripped my robe, so God has ripped the kingdom out of your own hand. And he's given it to another. He goes on in verse 29, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Essentially, Samuel is telling us that, that yes, the Lord regretted, but he's not going to remain in regret. He's not going to be somehow turning over in his bed wondering, oh, what have I done? What have I done? It's like, no, these things he regrets because of the disobedience, not because of his decisions. He is not somehow uncertain about his future. He knows he makes the right decisions. He's done the things and he's just and right. And he will not suffer over these things. For he is the Lord God and he will not have regret. Samuel then says... I have sinned. Even if we read some of the next portions of the text, Samuel doesn't even get the, uh, I guess, position of actually taking the life of Agag because Samuel or Saul does not. And Samuel goes in and he takes the life of Agag and chops him to bits, we were told. Verse 35, which is the end of this passage of 15, it says, Samuel did not see Saul again until the days of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. If we fast forward to the very end of the book of 1 Samuel, we will see as Saul takes his own life by falling on a sword as he is being defeated in a battle, that he lays there injured, mortally wounded, and yet is not dead, and another comes along and takes his life. This one goes back and reports all these deeds to David. David. And in his report, he says, I am a sojourner, a son of an Amalekite. The irony that Saul's Saul's last breath is taken by one in which he was supposed to have wiped out. But because of his disobedience, it is this one who takes his life. The irony that God uses in his correction of his people is amazing. So we have seen these three things. We've seen the orders. We've seen the partial fulfillment. We've seen the face-to-face. Now let us seek to make a way for a heart after God's own. For the purpose of all these things are for our teaching. In fact, if we were to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, in the New Testament, Paul writes in reference to the story of the golden calf, that these things happened as an example for us and were written down for our instructions. Now, in reference to this whole idolatry that the nation of Israel had done in the book of Exodus, Paul says at that time, these things happened for an example for us and for our instruction. Now, I don't believe that's just true of that specific thing, but I believe that's true of all of the Old Testament, that all these things were written down for an example for us to see how God interacts, to see the pain in which God has when he sees the disobedience of his people, for how decisive he is in his judgment upon people, even his own people, even in the life of Saul. We see these things and we see the nature of God and they ought to draw us near to God and to worship him and to adore him for the very nature of who he is but these things teach us as well and instruct us so let us ask the question what did we learn in chapter 15 here are a few things that i have gleaned god requires careful obedience to his word and his commands he will not accept partial fulfillment of his commands god considers complete disobedience God expects genuine repentance, not our efforts to seek and try to justify our sin. We see Saul who cares little about the effects of his disobedience upon the Lord. But we also see Samuel who feels what God feels. We get a rich picture of what it must mean to have a heart after God's own. We see these things. Of what God has done in his judgments and his expectations of obedience. But we know all these things are about to teach us and to direct us. He is making a way for a king after his own heart. And he has set aside Saul because of his disobedience. And he is just and right in all of his actions. For that is what we also learn here from chapter 15. But if we are to travel two chapters back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see Samuel speaking to Saul about his disobedience of a sacrifice in the midst of a battle. And he tells him, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. When we look at this text, one of the things in verse 14 that stands out. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. I believe because of the way the Bible teaches that God continues to seek after men and women after his own heart. That he desires us to love him and to serve him, to to reach out to him and be moved by the things that are moving to God. When we rebel, we ought to feel his pain. When we see success and we see people come to Christ, we also ought to rejoice as God rejoices. We ought to feel the things that God feels and experience the things that God also experiences. Perhaps if we looked at some other New Testament passages to help us to just think through this whole idea of what God is doing in and amongst us. If we looked at Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, therefore be imitators of God. We're clearly (laughs) supposed to have some similarities and sameness as God. We're to be imitators of him. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. And backing up into verse chapter 4, verse 32, we're commanded to be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us also similar in 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 8 we see some of these same ideas coming about as Peter there teaches us he says have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind so you might be asking how do these verses help us to somehow nurture a heart after God's own if we looked at the verses, specifically in verse 8 out of 1 Peter chapter 3, the last thing we see is a humble mind. Meaning that we know that it is God only who can actually bring about the place of repentance, that we are totally and utterly dependent upon Him, that we need Him for everything. And it is a place in which we must come and recognize that it is God whom we depend upon completely. And as we seek to make our own hearts more like God's after his own nature, we see that we are called to be tender-hearted. That That is to feel deeply. What it literally means to have a tender heart is it's like a heart that is full of nerves. So when it's touched, it feels, it reacts, it responds to our touch and to the things around us. So when people hurt, we hurt. When people rejoice, we rejoice, which is also what sympathy means for when people hurt, We hurt, and when they rejoice, we rejoice. That God is trying to bring about in us a transformation, a sensitivity, a heart after his own. For God seeks after people with a heart after his own. And we are to be affected by these things and to love one another as he has loved us. So once again, how then do we nurture a heart after God's own? How do we feel what God feels? I have these things that I believe might help us from these texts that we've read. The first thing is that we need to do is we need to repent. Genuine repentance, not justification of our sins, but to genuinely repent before God. To come before him and declare our failures and put our hearts before God and open ourselves up and expose ourselves to God. We need to acknowledge that our only means of genuine and real change is through Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can change our hearts, change our lives. He is the only source of hope that we have that we would ever become anything in the sense of having a heart after God's own. And we also need to come before the Lord in prayer and ask God to change us. We need to have a desire for the change and transformation that only God can bring. And we can only do that through prayer. And we need to cling to the trust in the word of God and its power to change us. And it's power that we believe that it has a capacity to bring change in us. And that we believe it and we trust in it. And finally, we resolve to feel. We develop a longing to have hearts after God's own. Look at what David, for this is all about making way for a heart after God's own in the king of David. We know ultimately that David is, there's a greater David, which is Jesus Christ. But here we want to look at how David's responded. As we come to a close in Psalms 119. It says, make me understand the way of your precepts. And I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. And I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. I will run in the way of your commandments when you have enlarged my heart. I believe even to this day that God seeks after men and women after his own heart. Just as God has made way for David, I believe we also need to seek and make way for our hearts in ourselves to be more conformed after God's own heart, then we too, just as David says, can run in the way of God's commandments when he enlarges our hearts. Then we will be able to live for our king, Jesus Christ, our savior and our king.